Well, following rules, obeying instructions, submitting to authority, well, these things often bring reward or blessing. In our fallen world, this is not always true, but often it is. The baker who diligently follows the instructions of the recipe gets a delicious cake. That baker had chosen to substitute salt for sugar. The results would be much different. The farmer who chooses the right crop for the climate and chooses to plant in the right season, uh, they often reap a bountiful harvest. The child who willingly submits to his parents' authority often enjoys the pleasure of close, intimate relationship with his parents. Well, in his book, God's Big Picture, Vaughn Roberts writes this, God longs for human beings to enjoy intimate relationship with him in his presence. As he is a perfect, holy God, that is possible only as we submit to his loving rule and do not sin. That is life at its best, life as it was designed to be lived. To live under God's rule means to enjoy God's blessing. The two go together. In other words, submitting to God's loving rule and authority, that brings his blessing. We see that in today's passage. You can turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 23, verse 20, all the way through 24, 18. Now, this passage reveals that the true blessing of submitting to God's rule is not any material blessing, but the gift of his presence. The true joy and gift of relationship with God is not necessarily that we receive things from God. It's that we receive God himself. In fact, all of Exodus makes this clear. We're going to be looking at the tabernacle next week, which is how God could dwell with his people. Well, God, he is the bountiful harvest. He is the delicious cake of God's people. He is the reward. It is God himself who is the supreme good of his people. It is him alone who can satisfy the, the deepest desires of our heart. In him alone is to be found true joy and peace and security and rest. Brothers and sisters, it is only in his presence that we are truly blessed and truly satisfied. Well, the problem is, as sinful, fallen creatures, we often have trouble believing this. Uh, we think that true satisfaction is to be found in other things or just things. We want earthly blessings. We're quick to, to seek security and joy and satisfaction in those things that we can taste and see and touch and feel. We have a lot more trouble seeking joy and satisfaction in God's promise that he will never leave us or forsake us. In our passage for today, God essentially holds out the blessing of life with him to Israel. And he gives Israel an experience of his presence that they might trust him and worship him alone. I have three points to today's sermon, three points. The first is the blessings of life with the Lord. The blessings of life with the Lord. That's going to be chapter 23. The second, committing to life with the Lord. Committing to life with the Lord. It's going to be the first eight verses of chapter 24. And then finally, the reward of life with the Lord. The reward of life with the Lord. That'll be verses 9 through 18 of chapter 24. 
So the first, the blessings of life with the Lord. Look at me with, at chapter 23, starting in verse 20. This is God speaking to Moses. I am going to send an angel before you to protect you on the way and bring you to the place I have prepared. Be attentive to him and listen to him. Do not defy him because he will not forgive your acts of rebellion, for my name is in him. But if you will carefully obey him and do everything I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and a foe to your foes. For my angel will go before you and bring you to the land of the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites, and Jebusites, and I will wipe them out. Do not bow and worship to their gods and do not serve them. Do not imitate their practices. Instead, demolish them and smash their sacred pillars to pieces. Serve the Lord your God and he will bless your bread and your water. I will remove illnesses from you. No woman will miscarry or be childless in your land. I will give you the full number of your days. I will cause the people ahead of you to feel terror and I will throw into confusion all the nations you come to. I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you and retreat. I will send hornets in front of you and they will drive out the Hivites, Canaanites, and Hittites away from you. I will not drive them out ahead of you in a single year. Otherwise, the land would become desolate and wild animals would multiply against you. I will drive them out little by little ahead of you until you have become numerous and take possession of the land. I will set your borders from the Red Sea to the Mediterranean Sea and from the wilderness to the Euphrates River. For I will place the inhabitants of the land under your control and you will drive them out ahead of you. You must not make a covenant with them or their gods. They must not remain in your land or else they will make you sin against me. If you serve their gods, it will be a snare for you. From the very start of these verses, God is promising to be with his people. He promised that he would send an angel before them to protect them on the, on the way and to, to bring them into the place, the promised land that he had prepared. This is not the first time this angel has been mentioned in Exodus. It was the angel of the Lord who appeared to Moses in the burning bush. When Israel was trapped at the Red Sea and the Egyptian army was closing in, it was the angel of the Lord who moved behind of Israel and shielded them, shielded the people from the approaching Egyptian army. And we're not exactly sure who this angel is who's mentioned so often in Exodus. But we see, especially in these verses and even in the burning bush, that the angel is described as virtually synonymous with God himself. In verses 21 and 22, we see that God has put his name on this angel and that obeying the angel is the same thing as obeying God. And then if you just keep reading through these verses, notice how quickly it shifts to the Lord saying what he will do. He says, I will, I will, I will, ten different times in these short verses. Oh, that has led many to believe that this angel is Jesus himself, Jesus before he took on human flesh. We cannot say for sure whether that is true. But I say that so you do not miss the big point here. God was promising to be with his people. He was promising the, the blessing and protection of his presence if the people would listen and obey. However, if they refused to live under his rule and authority, Israel would not enjoy his blessing, but his curse. We see that in, in verse 21 of our text. Remember Vaughn Roberts at the beginning, that quote I gave you, to live under God's rule is to enjoy his blessing. Well, that is life how it was intended. That is the good life. 
And just look at God's promises to the people of Israel here. He promises their well-being. They would not experience illness or barrenness. They would enjoy rest and prosperity in the promised land. God promises to be their protector and their defender. He would drive out all their enemies as they enter the promised land. God's telling the people of Israel he was for their good. He even tells them, I'm not going to drive out all your enemies in a single year so that the land doesn't get overgrown and wild animals don't come in. I'm going to give it some time for you to grow so you can take care of the land. God's telling Israel, I am for your good. And if they would obey, they would enjoy all the blessings that were promised to Abraham. God God is always faithful to fulfill his word of promise. But again, they must submit to his authority to enjoy these blessings. Brothers and sisters, life is always better if we follow God's instructions. So for Israel, as a nation, they wanted to enjoy the blessings of his presence and not the consequences of his displeasure. They must worship him alone. You see this over and over in the text. Just look at verses 24 and 25. Well, as the commentator Peter Inns writes, the Israelites were redeemed from Egypt so that they might serve Yahweh rather than Pharaoh. The jealous God was fighting for his people in order to turn their attention towards him. Redemption leads to worship. What anchors the message of this entire section is Yahweh's insistent teaching to his people that they belong to him alone. He is their God who brought them out of Egypt. If they do not remember this foundational fact, if they do not let this truth seep into their hearts, the laws are nothing but hollow precepts and the promised land nothing but another plot of earth. Brothers and sisters, their worship of the Lord alone was to be foundational to everything else. And not just outward forms of worship, but hearts that were fully devoted to the Lord. Brothers and sisters, true worship starts on the inside. It starts in the heart, and then it it, it erupts like a volcano into words and deeds. Oh, Israel's redemption, their salvation from Egypt, was to lead to their worship of God alone. Christian, the, the same thing is true for you. God saved you for relationship with you. God saved you so that you would worship him alone. He has created you for intimate relationship. And he has brought you into relationship with him. If you have repented and placed your faith in Jesus Christ, he's brought you into relationship with him through the blood of Jesus Christ. That fact should fuel your worship. Brothers and sisters, it's as you reflect and meditate on the glories of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How your heart is turned towards the Lord as he works through those truths by his spirit in your heart. Well, if you're anything like me, you probably read this section of scripture, these these 13 verses or 14 verses we just read, and all these amazing promises that God made to the people of Israel, and you think, sign me up. That sounds great. Easiest decision of my life. But Christian, I think we know from experience that submitting to God's authority is far easier said than done. We're often tempted to believe that what the world has to offer is far better than what Jesus has to offer. Though we can see his promises written right there in the scriptures before us. We have to fight for faith and holiness. 
But the same thing was true for Israel. By laying out the blessings of life with him, well, God was calling for their faith and trust. But these promised blessings to Israel are, are so wonderful and, and magnificent that I think it can be easy for us to miss the fact that Israel would face enemies as they entered the promised land. God promised his protection. They did not need to fear. But Israel would have to fight. Israel was going to have to fight. And when those enemies appeared in flesh and blood before them, yeah, maybe these promises wouldn't seem so great anymore. Maybe God wouldn't seem so close anymore. When they had to pick up swords and shields and walk out to battle, maybe following the Lord wouldn't sound so great as it sounds right here. Would they fear? Or would they trust? Well, their trust in his protection and in his promises were put to the test. And if you know your Bible, you know that this is a test that Israel would fail. When they first get to the borders of the promised land, they're so fearful of the strength and the power of these nations that inhabit the promised land and that God has promised to drive out, that they refuse to enter. They say, no, we don't want any part of that. And so the Lord sentenced Israel to 40 years of wandering in the wilderness until that generation that refused to enter in died off. Again, the blessings of the Lord only come as we submit to his rule and authority. Well, after Israel did finally enter the promised land 40 years later, they would not fully drive out the nations as God commanded them to do. They started off well, but as God let the nations stay so the land didn't go bad, eh, they found it easier to compromise than obey. They got used to living with the nations. It was easier to make peace with the nations than to obey the Lord and fight. It was easier to live as the nations around them lived than to be a holy people to the Lord and submit to his commands. As we read in verse 33, the gods of the nations did become a snare to them. The gods of the nations did turn the hearts of Israel away from the Lord. You may be wondering why God promised to destroy these nations anyway and to drive them out. Well, brothers and sisters, the answer is right there. They were full-on idolaters. They worshipped other gods. They had wicked practices. Their sins had risen to the Lord, and God was going to use Israel as a means of judgment. But Israel thought that they could find joy and blessing in following the gods of these nations rather than the Lord. And because they were led astray, they forfeited the blessings of the Lord and experienced the curse of his displeasure instead. Eventually, they're exiled from the land of promise, removed from the land of promise. Well, church, Christian, your problems and enemies do not just disappear when you become a Christian. It's not like God saves you and then, boom, no more problems, everything's great. Uh, just like Israel did not wake up and find that suddenly that land had zero enemies in it. We still must fight our sinful flesh. The powers of darkness were defeated at the cross, but the enemy is still waging warfare. Until Jesus returns, Satan still has power and influence. He still battles God's people. We still have to fight for holiness. We have to take up the, the armor that God has given us. Brothers and sisters, you will face trials and temptations. And when you do, 
God calls you to trust that he is with you. And life with him is better than anything else. No matter how it might look at the moment, life with him is better than anything else. God sometimes, though, feels distant. And problems seem close. It often feels easier to give in to temptation rather than obey. Will you serve and worship God alone? Will you compromise and take the easy way out? The riches and pleasures of the world often seek to divert your eyes away from Jesus and onto the things that are right in front of you, the things that you can touch and feel and taste. There are times when those things seem far better than life with the Lord. And so when trials and temptations and opposition come, it often feels easier to give in or go along with the world than to make a stand for Christ and to obey his commands. Well, brothers and sisters, the New Testament makes it clear that our time on earth, when we're living right now, is in some ways parallel to Israel's time in the wilderness. God was promising to bring Israel to the promised land, the the land of blessing and rest, if they would persevere and remain faithful to him. Well, as we find out later in the Bible, throughout the New Testament particularly, well, the promised land of Canaan is just an earthly picture of the ultimate promised land, the new heavens and new earth that God will usher in when Jesus returns. That is the full fulfillment of God's promises here. It is in the new creation to come when there will be no more tears and no more sickness and no more sorrow and when the final enemies of death and Satan will fully be vanquished and will be no more. But in this life, in the wilderness, you will face enemies. Temptations will abound. Suffering and sickness will be there. Brothers and sisters, you are called to look forward to that final day and trust that life with God is better than anything the world has to offer. Well, that being said, it would be a big mistake. Brothers and sisters, it would be a big mistake and even spiritually dangerous to read these verses here. Exodus 23, verses 20 through 33. And think that God is making you a promise of good health and material prosperity in this life if you simply obey. You cannot take these promises to Israel and say, God is making these same exact promises in the same exact way to me now. That is spiritually dangerous, and it's not a correct interpretation of the Bible. No, that is a promise for the life to come. It is a promise for the true promised land, the new heavens and the new earth. God does not promise in this life that if you are faithful to obey him, that he is going to reward you with good health and material prosperity. God does not promise that. He does promise, though, that life with him, even in this world, is better. And he promises something better. He promises himself. He promises himself. God promises to always be with those who place their faith in Jesus Christ. Friends, to to live under God's rule and enjoy God's blessing, you must submit yourself to Jesus Christ. He is the clearest expression of God's presence with his people. In Jesus, 
God came as a man to live among us, as one of us. And therefore, Jesus can say, he who has seen him has seen the Father. He who knows him knows the Father. And all then who place their faith in Jesus Christ receive the gift and the blessing of his Spirit to continually dwell with them. Brothers and sisters, if you are his, you are never alone. God promises to do you good. He is for your good. And so, friends, do not make the mistake of setting your affections on material blessings and ignoring the the far richer inheritance that God has stored up for those who love him. Do not chase after the things of the world and lose out on the blessings of relationship with the creator of the universe. Commit to life with the Lord. That brings us to the the second point of the sermon, committing to life with the Lord. Look at me at the beginning of chapter 24. Then he, God, said to Moses, Go up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of Israel's elders, and bow and worship at a distance. Moses alone is to approach the Lord, but the others are not to approach, and the people are not to go up with him. Moses came and told the people all the commands of the Lord and all the ordinances. Then all the people responded with a single voice. We will do everything that the Lord has commanded. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early the next morning and set up an altar and 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel at the base of the mountain. Then he sent out young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half the blood and set it in basins. The other half of the blood he splattered on the altar. He then took the covenant scroll and read it aloud to the people. They responded, We will do and obey all the Lord has commanded. Moses took the blood, splattered it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you concerning all these words. Well, significant events, big occasions, they're often marked by big ceremonies. When two countries sign a major treaty with one another or a major trade agreement or perhaps a, a peace agreement, uh, there's often a big ceremony in which the leaders sit in front of a bunch of cameras and symbolically sign pieces of paper. They shake one another's hands. Uh, when two people get married, again, big event, comes with a big ceremony. Uh, this is something like what is going on in these verses. The covenant between God and Israel is being certified, ratified, formally agreed upon. Uh, The relationship is being sealed. It begins with the Lord calling Moses and his sons, Nadab and Abihu, along with Aaron and 70 of the elders of Israel to come up the mountain near the presence of the Lord and bow down in worship. And then God called Moses into his presence and delivered to him his commands and ordinances, the terms of the covenant, for him to deliver to the people. We see in that that this covenant is not one that Israel negotiated with God. They did not sit down at the negotiation table. No, this is a covenant that they accepted from God. He offered it by his grace at his initiative And he set the terms of the covenant. Again, life with the Lord comes only by his grace, at his initiative, and on his terms. 
But it's also true, as we see in these verses, that Israel promised to be faithful covenant partners. They welcomed God's rule and authority by promising to obey. They, they committed themselves to life with the Lord. Well, that's what it looks like to invite God's blessing. It's to eagerly and joyfully welcome his rule and his commands and his authority. Uh, Israel is like the baker following the recipe. They're committing to following the recipe. It's the farmer planting during planting season. They say, we will do it. We will follow your instructions, Lord. Well, in preparation for the big ceremony, Moses built an altar, set up pillars to represent the people, and then the ceremony began, and the Israelites began to offer a series of burnt offerings and fellowship offerings on the altar that they had established. Moses collected the blood from these offerings, he took half the blood and he sprinkled it out on the altar on which the sacrifices were made. And then after reading the words of the covenant aloud to the people, after the people once again committed to obey these words, Moses took the other half of the blood and he sprinkled it out on the people. He sprinkled it on the people who were assembled. What's going on with all this? Well, for one, it makes it absolutely clear that blood was required for Israel to enter into relationship with God. They could not enter into relationship with God apart from the shedding of blood because they were an unclean people. Just like we, friends, are an unclean people. We're sinners by nature, unclean on the inside. Israel was a people defiled by sin. We are a people who are defiled by sin. Make no mistake, it was not Israel's goodness or faithfulness that made them worthy of life with the Lord. They needed to be sprinkled by the blood. They were separated from God and their sin needed to be atoned for. Now, this is the reason for all these burnt offerings. Burnt offerings were offerings made for the atonement of sin, to cleanse the people. Because of their sin, the people would die if they drew near to the presence of the Lord without atonement first being made. The only way that God could come and dwell with his people and be among them is if a substitute was sacrificed in their place. But the fellowship offering, the other type of offering, it symbolized fellowship with God. Once atonement was made, fellowship sacrifices were offered to symbolize the fellowship that God now had with his people. There was also a great symbolism in the, in the sprinkling of blood, the blood that Moses sprinkled on the altar and the people. And the blood that was sprinkled on the altar signified that atonement had been made. And the blood sprinkled on the people represented that they had been cleansed and brought into fellowship with the Lord. It also represented that Israel had made an oath before the Lord, an oath sealed with blood, an oath that they would obey the Lord and follow the terms of the covenant. But for as serious as this is and as solemn as this was, God's grace was evident even as the people committed themselves to obedience. In the very terms of the covenant, God provided a way for Israel to atone for their sin. He allowed sacrifices of animals to cover their sin, for the blood of animals to be sprinkled on them. He'd go along to establish the Old Testament sacrificial system. 
God did not demand perfect obedience from the people. But he graciously permitted the people to offer sacrifices to maintain their fellowship with him. To maintain their their life with the Lord. I love how one commentator puts it. He writes this. So the law of God was read to them. And they gave their assent. We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Henceforth, they will be holy people of the revealed word. But, and how significant this is. No sooner had they made this enormous commitment than the shed blood was sprinkled over them like a huge covering of mercy. They were committed to obedience. That was their prime concern. But God knows that the best intentions fall constantly short and provided the blood of sacrifice to be at the ready to cater for each and every lapse from his revealed way. Brothers and sisters, what mercy and grace that God showed to the people of Israel. But I hope that as we've been reading through these verses and this covenant ceremony, is bringing to mind a far greater grace that God has shown to his people, a far greater grace that God has shown to us in Jesus Christ. Again, as we saw in Hebrews chapter 12, this old covenant, and even the, the covenant ceremony were only shadows of a far greater and more glorious reality to come. Jesus is that greater reality. Again, as we just read from Hebrews 12, we have now come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. And we have come to the sprinkled blood, his sprinkled blood. And see how important it is to know the Old Testament for understanding the new By his death on the cross, Jesus made full atonement for sin, something that the blood of bulls and goats, no matter how many were sacrificed, could never do. They had to be offered again and again and again to atone for sin. But as the author of Hebrews writes, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Jesus stood in our place as our substitute on the cross, He has purchased our forgiveness and sprinkled us clean by his blood. It is not our obedience that has made life with God possible. It is Jesus who makes life with God possible. And therefore, the author of Hebrews exhorts us to draw near to God with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. Brothers and sisters, we can draw near to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. We have been brought into intimate fellowship with God through the sprinkled blood of Jesus Christ. And we can come to God knowing that we carry no more guilt and no more condemnation because Christ has died in our place. When we come to the Lord, we must, like Israel, commit to obey. We are called to give the Lord our allegiance, to submit to his rule and authority. But we know that even though our best intentions fall constantly short, and we never fully live up to God's standard, we've repented and placed our faith in Jesus Christ, we stand forgiven. We know that if we are in Christ, if we are brothers and sisters with Christ, we will never lose access to God's presence. And we know that one day we will be with him where he is because we have been sprinkled clean by the blood of the Lamb. 
And we know that though we will fall short, Christ is even now at work sanctifying us through his spirit. He is making us holy. He is producing in us that which he requires, obedience and holiness. It is Jesus who gives us the strength to persevere to the end, to persevere in faithfulness. It is his work in us, not ours. The people of Israel, they committed to obey, but they could not fall through, follow through because their hearts had not been changed. But in the new covenant, Christ has given us new hearts that we might truly obey. And so, Christian, I want you to hear this. Because Christ has given us new hearts, you can obey. You can obey because God is at work in you. The power of sin in your life has been broken, and God has given you everything that you need for life and godliness. There is nothing deficient in what God has given to you. But even when you do not obey, you can be confident that Christ will one day present you spotless and blameless before his throne. He will one day present you truly without sin. And friends, if you are here and you're not a Christian, and if guilt or shame over past sin or present sin is is keeping you from coming to Jesus, if you think the Lord will never accept you, please know that God's acceptance of you has nothing to do with you. Jesus' blood covers every sin. You can have the blessing of fellowship with God. You can be made clean. You can be sprinkled clean. No matter what you have done, all you have to do is receive Jesus by faith. To repent, to believe, say it is not my works, but I need Jesus' blood on my behalf. So friends, I urge you to submit to him, follow him, trust him. There is nothing better than life with him. That brings us to the final point of the sermon, the reward of life with the Lord. Look with me, starting at verse 9 in chapter 24. Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of Israel's elders, and they saw the God of Israel. Beneath his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli, as clear as the sky itself. God did not harm the Israelite nobles. They saw him, and they ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and stay there so that I may give you the stone tablets with the law and commandments I have written for their instruction. So Moses arose with his assistant Joshua and went up the mountain of God. He told the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. Aaron and her are here with you. Whoever has a dispute should go to them. When Moses went up the mountain, the cloud covered it. The glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it for six days. On the seventh day, he called to Moses from the cloud. The appearance of the Lord's glory to the Israelites was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. Moses entered the cloud as he went up the mountain, and he remained on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. I think many people recognize the importance of intimacy and and fellowship over a meal. Families often make it a priority to eat meals together because they know that meals are an important time to to slow down, to fellowship with one another, to build relationship with one another. 
It's one thing to, to meet a friend at a coffee shop. It's quite another to invite that friend over for dinner at your house. Most people naturally understand that there is deep fellowship over a meal. So we should not miss the fact that immediately following the, the sealing of the covenant with blood, Moses and his sons, Aaron and the 70 elders of Israel are invited near to the presence of the Lord to what? To eat and drink. God invites them into intimate fellowship with him over a meal. Now, this was only possible through the blood of the covenant. Just look at verse 11. The text points out what a remarkable thing it was for these men to see something of the God of Israel and eat and drink with him and yet not be harmed. Like, they could do this and live. This is so notable that the author has to point this out. It is God who makes it possible for us to live with him and fellowship with him. Well, at this meal that God invited these select few to join, he gave them a small taste of what a glorious blessing it is to really be in relationship with him. He gave them a small picture of the true blessing of, of being in his presence. Now, all of Israel saw something of God's glory as it descended on, on Mount Sinai like a consuming fire. But this is far better. This is more intimate. Again, the true blessing of the covenant is not any material blessing. It is relationship with the God of the universe. The ultimate reward of life with the Lord is the Lord himself. He is the reward. He is the delicious cake. He is the bountiful harvest. Well, friends, we, we know that people generally should not get married for money. People generally do not get married for money. Sometimes they do, but we generally don't think very highly of those situations. No, people get married because they love one another. They want the fellowship with one another. They want the intimacy of a married relationship with one another. So it is with God. Intimacy with the Lord is the reward. Well, the Lord revealed these truths to these select few by giving them a small taste of just how wonderful and beautiful he is. These men did not see the fullness of God's glory. It seems that perhaps they only saw the, the bottom of his, of his feet or his proverbial feet or maybe even what he was standing on. But it was still a sight to behold. Beneath his feet was a floor of lapis lazuli. I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong. It's a beautiful blue precious stone. And it was of such great quality that it, it was as clear as the sky itself. Bluer than the bluest of skies. The sight was glorious because God is glorious. And picture the most scenic landscape you can imagine. The bluest sky, a picturesque beach, a, a, just a, a wonderful and awe-inspiring mountain view. The Lord is far more beautiful. But think of how satisfying and refreshing a, a cool drink of water is on a hot day, maybe when you've been working outside. Brothers and sisters, the Lord is far more refreshing. I think of how comforting the words of a friend are during a, a time of, of trouble or distress. Well, the presence of the Lord is far more comforting. The, the Lord is far more glorious and far more beautiful and far more comforting, far more refreshing, far more captivating than anything this world has to offer. As the psalmist writes in Psalm 16, in his presence, there is fullness of joy. 
At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. How amazing it is that this glorious God desires relationship with us and that he would dwell with us by his spirit. Friends, the remarkable thing is that for as as amazing as this meal was, it was simply a foretaste of a far greater and far more glorious meal to come. A meal that would not just be shared by the 70 elders of Israel, but a meal that will be shared by all of God's people. This meal was a foretaste of the marriage supper of the Lamb that all God's people will eat together at the end of time. And what a day that will be. Prophesying of that meal, Isaiah writes these words in Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord of armies will prepare for all the peoples a feast of choice meat, a feast with aged wine, prime cuts of choice meat, fine vintage wine. On this mountain, he will swallow up the burial shroud, the shroud over all the peoples, the sheet covering all the nations. When he has swallowed up death once for all, the Lord God will wipe away the tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace from the whole earth. For the Lord has spoken. On that day it will be said, Look, this is our God. We have waited for him and he has saved us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let's rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Brothers and sisters, that's the wedding day of Christ and his bride. And brothers and sisters, the Lord has given a church. He has given the church a foretaste of that meal as well. On the night when he was betrayed and arrested, the Lord enjoyed a last supper with his disciples. And there he announced that he was inaugurating the new covenant in his blood. And we remember that covenant and our life with him and our fellowship with him every time we come to the Lord's table and we take the Lord's Supper together. It's a reminder that we have been sprinkled clean by the blood of the Lamb and that because of that, God is always with us. We have fellowship with him. And the Lord's Supper is a reminder of what is to come when we will obtain the outcome of our faith, which is the salvation of our souls. It is a reminder that one day we will sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb and we will enjoy the full reward of life with the Lord. And so, brothers and sisters, when you are tempted to doubt, when God seems distant, when it's hard to to trust in His promises, what has God allowed us to do? Allowed us to come together and feast together to remind ourselves of our enduring fellowship with Him and even our relationships with one another. But church, our our text closes not with a meal, but with Moses and Joshua, the the future leaders of Israel being invited higher up the mountain to receive instructions and commands of the Lord. They're invited into the midst of the glory cloud that was covering the top of Mount Sinai. I believe this points us to the fact that this amazing experience of eating with the Lord was to be the exception during our time on earth, the constant is the word of the Lord. Listening to God's word, obeying God's word. Brothers and sisters, that's how we enjoy fellowship with the Lord. It's how we preserve the fellowship between God and his people. Churches, we wait for the Lord to return. As we wait for that marriage supper of the Lamb, we are nourished by God's word. God speaks to you now through his word. It is God's word that that gives you a knowledge of him. When God feels distant, his word is always there. 
brothers and sisters, you can hear from God day and night. God speaks now through his word, by his spirit. You can hear from him anytime, day and night. It is through his word that God exercises his rule and authority. And so, if you are to enjoy the blessing of the good life that only comes with relationship to God and with God, friends, you must submit to his word. Listen to it. Abide in it. Meditate on it. Do not neglect it. It's hard to say that you have any true desire for fellowship with the, with the Lord if you take his word that he's given you and just ignore it. God speaks to you and he desires fellowship with you and he's given you his word that you might know him and obey him and follow him. So do not substitute salt for sugar. Do not plant, do not plant wheat or you should plant rice. Follow the Lord's instructions. Listen to his word. Obey it. See in him, in him. And by following his rules, you can have the good life. Brothers and sisters, thanks be to God that as new covenant believers, his word was not, has not just been written on tablets of stone, but his teaching has been written on our hearts. So the prayer of God's people should echo the prayer of David from Psalm 19. Pray that his words would be more desirable to you than gold. That his word would be sweeter to you than honey. Do you want the gold of the promised land or the honey of the promised land? Or do you want the riches of God's word? Brothers and sisters, there is abundant reward in keeping God's word. Because it is as we submit ourselves to his word and his rule, that we enjoy the blessings of his presence with us. Let's pray.